Hello, my Repro Film Podcast fam. I'm your host, Asha Dyer, back with another mid-month episode where we are celebrating male allyship during the month of November. If you haven't yet watched our featured short film, Sweet Potatoes, be sure to make time for that because the story of Luis Miramontes, the Mexican scientist who pioneered a product which changed women's lives and the world forever, I'm talking about birth control, of course, is nothing short of inspiring. And speaking of birth control, fast forward to 2022, we are now having conversations about contraceptives, not just for women, but also for men. You may have seen articles over the past few years about new potential birth control methods being tested on men. This is exciting progress to see, and it has made our entire Repro Film team think more deeply about what male allyship means beyond supporting the right for women to use contraceptives or have access to abortion. Allyship has to go much further than just holding up an I'm with her sign at a women's march, right? If you answered yes, then you are in for a treat because my guest in this episode will completely change the way we think about contraceptives, who can take them, and why we need to think beyond the gender binary when it comes to reproductive freedom and access to repro healthcare. Today, I'm speaking with Kevin Shane, who is the Marketing and Communications Director for an organization called the Male Contraceptive Initiative, or MCI. He is leading the organization's advocacy and outreach efforts. And I honestly could have kept chatting to him all day because I had so many questions. This organization is doing some incredibly brilliant and frankly revolutionary things in the contraceptive space for men or sperm producers, which is the term Kevin will explain more about in the interview. Before we get into the episode, I want you all to think about how birth control completely shifted our lives as women, as well as the world economically, and revolutionized the power dynamics egg producers have in their families. Of course, there is a dark history of racism toward black and brown women when it comes to early testing of birth control, as well as major pharmaceutical cover-ups of certain birth control methods becoming dangerous and harmful to women. And this is something we as a country need to acknowledge and rectify with transparency going forward. Now, if we start to see multiple methods of contraceptives hitting the market in the next few years for men, how will our families and society at large be revolutionized once more? And how will it impact our pursuit for gender equality? To answer all these questions and more, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Kevin Shane from the Male Contraceptive Initiative. Kevin, Shane, thank you for joining me today and welcome to the podcast. Very excited to be speaking with you today. And before we dive into everything MCI, can you tell us briefly about uh, your background and how you came to work at MCI and your role there right now? Sure, absolutely. And uh, thank you for having me on the podcast, Asha. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, my name is uh, Kevin Shane. I'm the Marketing and Communications Director for Male Contraceptive Initiative. Um, and my background is a bit circuitous. Um, so I started uh, years ago, I, I was in kind of corporate communications um, marketing and uh, did that for a number of years and then decided um, I wasn't really feeling that fulfilled. So I wanted to uh, look for opportunities to kind of ply my trade in a more um, socially conscious um, environment. So I, I ended up taking some time off and uh, traveling around the world for a bit and uh, spent some time in Cambodia working with some nonprofits there. And then eventually migrated to uh, India, where I spent about seven years 
um, in a dual role of kind of communications lead and a human-centered design practitioner for a, uh, a firm there. Um, that really worked in a bifurcated practice of corporate consultancy as well as in the quote unquote development sector. So I was able to spend a lot of time working in some really challenging contexts um, to co-design solutions with people around some pressing challenges, things like financial inclusion, water and sanitation, education. Um, and towards the end of my time there, I started working more and more in uh, family planning. Um, and the, the last project I worked on was um, actually in collaboration with my our executive director at MCI, Heather Vidat, uh, looking at kind of a speculative design um, exercise, looking at what the far future uh, contraceptive product landscape could look like. And the, the, the focus of this kind of research study was really on um, egg producers or women. So what we kept hearing while we were doing kind of the field research from people is why are you not focusing on, on all people? Why are you not thinking about um, sperm producers as well? And that, I, you know, embarrassingly, that was kind of the first time in my life where I started really thinking, yeah, wait a minute, why as a, as a heterosexual man, why don't I have more options? Um, so when I came back to the United States and I reconnected with Heather, she had just taken over as the executive director at MCI, and she was looking for someone with my background, with you know a bit of that combination of communications and marketing, but also the human-centered design um, background to, to really look at and investigate ways that we can improve the, uh, the development of novel forms of non-hormonal reversible contraception for sperm producers. And, and I've been here for four years. So it's been a, an amazing adventure. And, um, you know, certainly uh, in line with what I was saying before of, of trying to focus on something that, you know, is a huge pressing social challenge. Um, for me, what I kind of arrived at was all of the other kind of problems that I was working on were really kind of symptoms of a larger challenge. And that's a lack of reproductive autonomy for people. Um, so the lack of contraceptive products, uh, the lack of educational resources um, really kind of leads to this, this uh, profusion of unintended pregnancies in the world. So if you look at a Venn diagram of these social challenges, that, that inability for people to um, completely have control over their reproductive autonomy um, and their family planning goals sits right in the middle of it. So it's, it's an incredibly uh, huge challenge, but also an, an incredible privilege to work on, on this. Yeah. I love that you connected it with other issues like economic stability. And, you know, I think that's really important to make those connections with reproductive autonomy. And it really sounds like you eat, pray, loved your way into MCI, which, <laughs> which I love. Indeed. It's such a great story. Um, but yeah, other than you. a few viral articles recently about, you know, previous male birth control experiments being discontinued because of the side effects and, you know, collectively sure. women were like, oh my goodness, let's bring out the tiny violins. Um, yes. Can you tell us what the actual options are for contraceptives for men right now compared to the plethora available to women? Currently, there are literally two methods available for two, that's producers. It. Two, that's it. So we have the condom, uh, so a barrier method, um, which has what they call a typical use um, failure rate of around 13%. So if you are only relying on condoms um, to avoid an unintended pregnancy, uh, it fails more than one out of every 10 times you're using that. So it's it, it, 
obviously uh, we can improve upon that. Um, now, I will have to say in defense of condoms, we're, we're not anti-condom. We're pro all contraception. Um, I think barrier methods are incredibly important. Like The condom is incredibly important for avoiding STIs and STDs, things like that. But um, you know, in terms of uh, pure pregnancy prevention, it's, it's less than ideal. Uh, and then you have vasectomy, um, which is intended to be a permanent form of sterilization. Um, so reversing a vasectomy is, is an incredibly challenging, complex microsurgery. Um, the success rates are not very high. So the longer you are away from when you got your vasectomy, the lower the odds are of reversing it. But even more importantly than that, even if you are able to successfully reverse a vasectomy, that does not guarantee that your fertility will return. So you oh. see um, it, the pregnancy rates post vasectomy reversal uh, really vary hugely from 30% up to 90%. So even if you are able to reverse one, um, it's no guarantee that you're going to be able to facilitate pregnancy. Um, and those are really the two that we're at right now. And I think to your point, going back to what you said about um, side effects, one of the challenges that we really have as a field, and it's something that I think is very important for the general public to be aware of, is how we define risk. Um, and by we, I mean, um, you know, the, the FDA, the regulatory bodies that, that oversee the you know, development of new therapeutics. Um, it goes back to the Hippocratic Oath, right? So first, do no harm. Um, the way that we define risk vis-a-vis -a, -vis a pregnancy is a physical risk. So by virtue of the reproductive biology of egg producers and sperm producers, sperm producers cannot get pregnant. Therefore, there is no physical risk to a sperm producer's body in the case of a pregnancy. And because of that, um, and although alternatively, if you look at an egg producer, um, there is the, you know, the risk of death. Uh, you know, it's significant. The physical risks are significant up to and including death. And because of that, the kind of, I guess, appetite for, or at least um, the accommodation for side effects is much higher for people that face a physical risk. So what we have been doing, one of the things MCI has been doing is trying to advocate for a redefining of this risk profile to be a shared risk. So it's not fair to say to anyone to say that, oh, a sperm producer has no physical risk, therefore we can't uh, provide contraception because that is doing harm to an otherwise healthy mm. system. Um, and so that's something that as we work on developing more and more of these methods, we have to, in parallel, start working um, to make some systemic changes to ensure that uh, there aren't these unnecessary roadblocks to getting these products to market. Yeah, I love that shift in the way that you're helping me think and hopefully listeners too in terms of it's not just for one type of person, it's for everyone. This is something that affects, exactly. you know, families, communities, countries. Um, I'm also 100%. really intrigued by the terms you're using, egg producer and sperm producer. Tell me more about these labels and yeah. how the company is incorporating gender inclusion and diversity into your outreach, despite the fact that it's called male contraception. Yeah. And that is, that's a huge, um, and thank you, that's a great question. And it's one that we are hearing more and more. Um, and something that we're very passionate about um, internally. And using a term like male is, is outdated. We're largely shifting away from this 
binary understanding of gender identity to include more um, kind of gender identities. Um, and, and that's a great thing. It's, it's interesting by virtue of the work that we're doing, focusing on non-hormonal reversible methods, the timelines for the development are much longer. So you're talking, you know, five to 10 years before the first one will actually make it to market. So therefore, the, the people who we are designing these products for are today's adolescent and youth, right? And so if you look, there was just a, a, a recent study from Pew Research um, that found in the United States, people under the age of 30, one out of every 20, so 5% of that population identifies as non-binary. And so when we, as we work in very closely in data and the numbers kind of drive our decisions, you look at something like that and you think, my God, that's millions and millions yeah. and millions of people yeah. in this country alone. Yeah. Um, so when you start thinking about reproductive autonomy for all, about providing um, services and, and products for all people, that needs to be representative of all people, right? So we cannot design, we need to be as inclusive as possible in the, the products that are developed so that no one feels left out of this, that no one is un, unserved by these products. So um, it's something that we are very, very passionate about educating ourselves about, as well as helping to educate the general public. Um, so, I mean, anyone who's listening to this, if you have, uh, if this is something you're passionate about and you have the time and inclination, we would love to talk to you. So please reach out to us. Like we're trying our best. There's only five employees at MCI. Um, so we try our best to, to be as representative as possible. Um, but it's something that we need to, to be sensitive to and, and educate ourselves about. So any help we can get, the, the better. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really great. I mean, it's something that I'm learning about. I think a lot of people are passionate about reproductive autonomy, it's, you know, we're really widening that scope and that tent and being inclusive. So that's, yeah. that's really great. And in a nutshell, what does MCI do? And um, so people can get a general idea what, and what are the current studies or initiatives that you are funding right now? Sure. So we are, Male Contraceptive Initiative is a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Durham, North Carolina, where I am uh, also based. <laughs> um, there's only five of us, five employees, so quite a small organization, but we um, we provide funding and advocacy support for the development of non-hormonal reversal methods of contraception for sperm producers, which is quite a mouthful. Um, <laughs> but these are, you know, we're often asked because of that, oh, are, so are you opposed to hormonal contraception? Are you opposed to contraception for egg producers? And the answer is, unequivocally, no. <laughs> we support all forms of contraception for all users. Um, for us, though, as an organization, we really saw that, you know, there are hormonal methods that are quite far along in, in clinical trials. There's the profusion of methods for egg producers. But what we really saw was in the non-hormonal reversible space, especially long-acting methods, um, there wasn't a lot of funding available for that. And because of the lack of funding, there wasn't a lot of research happening. So we really identified this as, as quite a niche area that we could have tremendous impact in. Um, and so that's what our, our focus is. And we, what we like to say is that we provide our support to the research community goes from bench to boardroom. So we have youth initiatives that provide um, you know, undergraduate internships and even grants for them to work on projects with us. Um, we have graduate 
uh, and postdoc fellowships. Um, we provide seed grants, um, which are you know a couple hundred thousand dollars, and then discovering development grants, which can go up to half a million dollars. And those are can go to academic labs, um, small pharma startups. And then we have uh, investment vehicles called program uh, related investments, where we take equity stake or we invest in um, later stage targets that are, are promising and heading towards clinical trials. Uh, and that is to not only provide um, additional funding support for these tests necessary for clinical trials, but also for our own internal viability, right? So it's if we have a return on that investment, we can then take that money and put it into uh, researching additional targets. Um, so we are, again, a nonprofit. Uh, we like to say, and there's two parts of this statement. One is fantastic. One is not so good. Um, we are the second largest funder of non-hormonal reversible contraception for sperm wow. producers in the United States. Who's second the largest? Only the federal government, the U.S. government. Oh, okay. Yes. So, but, but that's the good part. <laughs> the bad part is we put about 1.2 to $1.5 million a year into labs to, to do the research necessary for developing these products. That is a, that's a great step forward. That's obviously a necessary step. Um, but the reality is, um, and the numbers kind of, it depends on how you, how you like to view these sources, but, um, upwards of a, it, it costs upwards of a billion dollars to bring a new drug to market. Oh, wow. So when you think about where we're at with our investment levels, um, we need to, we need a drastic ramp increase. It up. <laughs> in that yes. To ramp that funding up so yeah. that we can, um, fund the clinical trials necessary to get these, uh, products to market. So that's when you see these things of, oh, there's a kind of an in internal joke. Uh, it's a little gallows humor where people say, you know, we've been 10 years away for 50 years from the next <laughs> uh, contraceptive method for sperm producers. Right. And what drives that timeline is not the science, it's mm. the funding. Right. So there is, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential targets out there. We just need to get the funding in place necessary to, uh, to give the support and accelerate that development. So the good news is the funding exists. The bad news is how do we get the government to really take more action? And maybe that's something we can chat about in a call to action toward the end. Um, and so are there, what are the studies being done on contraceptive methods right now? Can you tell, about, tell us more about those that are happening? And also what is the interest or demand for male or you know, sperm producer contraceptives that are out there? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll, I'll kind of touch on that first because the the two things that we hear the most um, are, or the two questions that are asked most prominently are, will men be interested in these methods? And will female partners in, in a heterosexual relationship trust their male partner to contracept? And the data unequivocally says yes to both. So we, um, we funded a, a consumer research study a few years ago that found you know, it identified a potential market in America alone of 17 million men that are really wow. actively seeking better and more methods. Um, so that's a, really a huge market right there. Yes, 100%. Um, and then you also see there's all studies from, from all over the world that show trust is not, is not a factor in this, right? So uh, egg producers will trust sperm producers to contracept. Um, and that's, that's an important uh, 
point to, to kind of hammer home. Um, in terms of what's in development, it's been very exciting, uh, not just the non-hormonal field that we work in, but if you look at the hormonal side, um, there is a gel called Nest. It's a Nesterone testosterone gel, which um, you may have uh, heard about. It's this, you rub it on your shoulder. It causes you to cause men to be infertile. Um, it's the first uh, contraceptive method for sperm producers to make it to stage three clinical trials. And it is going wonderfully. So, you know, anecdotally, we've talked to some of the, the participants um, in the trial, as well as their partners and people seem to really love it. The side effects uh, have been very minimal. Um, nice. People are very happy about it. So that is most likely a knock on wood. Um, if things continue to progress well with that, um, that is, you know, something you can anticipate being on the market in the next couple of years. Oh, so wow. that's, that's, that's coming serious. soon. Um, and, and don't hold me to that. If, if anything's okay. <laughs> no, but then on, on the, on the non-hormonal side that we focus on, um, we invest in a whole kind of across the spectrum of products. So everything from, um, you know, long acting methods. So, uh, we work with, um, we have a grantee in Charlottesville, Virginia called Contraline, and as well as one based in um, the West Coast in California called uh, Vassal Gel. And they are um, both hydrogels, which are injected into the male vas deferens, um, which is kind of the tube where sperm exits the body. Um, so it acts like a reversible vasectomy and could last upwards of years. So it could be like one of those set it and forget it. Uh, Contraline likes to refer to their product, which is called Adam, as um, the male IUD. Um, so it's that's that long acting method where, you know, I often say to people, imagine you've got a child going off to college, they get this injection and they're guaranteed not to cause a pregnancy for the entire duration mm. of their time at the university. That right. would be unbelievable, right? right yeah. <laughs> so those are long acting. There's also, um, we launched uh, a for-profit subsidiary this year called Contraceptive Accelerator Network. And that is to help later stage targets um, with the funding necessary to kind of do the, you know, the necessary efficacy and safety testing prior to a clinical trial. And our first target that we're working on with um, CAN is the acronym, is uh, it's called tryptonide. It's a uh, Chinese herb. <laughs> I know, it's wonderful. It's a, Well, it's even better. It's derived from an herb called, uh, colloquially known as the thunder god vine. Of it's course. used in, uh, <laughs> in traditional herbal Chinese medicine. And um, there was a paper published in Nature uh, that got a lot of attention about this, where it was shown to be completely effective and safe in animal models. Um, and what it does is, you know, after you consume it for a few weeks, um, it, it prevents the sperm head from developing properly. So it's kind of a, an, a deformed uh, sperm head. So therefore, it cannot uh, it can't fertilize an egg. Um, and after a few weeks of stopping taking it, your fertility returns completely. So they've shown this to be safe and effective in animal models, and we're rapidly getting it towards uh, towards clinical trials so we can start testing it in humans. Um, Contraline is also planning on starting testing in humans in Australia later this year or early next year. I think COVID kind of delayed some of those timelines. Sure. We also, you know, we're working on trying to think 
with, you know, in parallel to what we saw with egg producer uh, contraceptive development, you know, when you start with a pill and all of a sudden now we have, you know, IUDs and injections and, you know, also this profusion mm -hmm. of different methods. So we, as we're developing the targets, we also want people thinking about the delivery methods um, too. Mm. So we're supporting uh, the development of a um, biodegradable implant, which um, can deliver contraceptive therapeutics over, a, over an extended period of time. So we're working with um, a developer at the University of North Carolina on that. Uh, and then also there's, there's other methods that target things like an enzyme that prevents the sperm tail from, from moving. So like mm. the sperms literally can't swim. So therefore they, you, you're, you're infertile. Um, so a lot of these, the methods that we work on because of non-hormonal, um, they're far more targeted, right? So yeah. hormonal contraception affects the entire endocrine system. It's a systemic yeah, intervention. Right. But what we're doing is, is looking at all of the mechanisms of action that take place within the reproductive uh, biological system of sperm producers and say, well, what if we just flip this switch off? What mm. if we flip that switch off? What would happen? And so um, early on when I started MCI, we'd invested in doing a landscape review of what, what is out there? What is the science that that we are even aware of that people have been working on. Um, and on our website, we have a database. It's well over a hundred different targets that have done exactly this, have looked at, okay, this enzyme, this protein, this thing is necessary for uh, the development of sperm cells, its ability to swim, their ability to fertilize an egg. So we're, we're looking at the entire spectrum of ways of, of, uh, reversibly interrupting fertility. And um, so we invest in a whole gamut of, of things. And as we put on the website, uh, on the database, if you are a scientist working on targets that are not represented in that database, please reach out to us because we'd love to support you and we'd love to promote your work. It's so fascinating. Like just the way you explain it all, it's all these things that it makes total sense. But like you said, there should be more education about it. So it's really encouraging to see that you're doing that and hopefully it'll encourage more um more companies to start up and you know do more research and get more funding from the government who has it so that's that's really exciting and and fascinating to hear about so switching gears a little bit and zooming out of the larger landscape of reproductive sorry let's say that again and so zooming out uh, a little to the larger landscape of reproductive healthcare. How does MCI respond to what has been happening politically? You know, the Dobbs decision regarding abortion, the potential threat of birth control, you know, by Justin's, Justice Clarence, in his opinion, in the Dobbs decision, which was very concerning to many people. And, you know, even conservatives in, in Congress, they're pushed back against covering egg producer contraceptives in the Affordable Care Act, you know, things like that. How does MCI view those? Or, you know, do you take a position? How do you respond to that? It's very interesting and encouraging to see how in such a negative situation, how it's really kind of catalyzed a lot of thinking and conversation around this, right? I think yeah. a lot of people prior to Roe v. Wade being overturned kind of took for granted the Novid, the first birth control pill came out 60 years ago. So this is, we're not talking about a considerable amount of time, yeah. but people 
especially in my generation, the younger generations, it's, it's kind of like the internet, right? Like, mm. of course, this has always been here. We didn't, we didn't know what it was like before this. And now suddenly we're in a place in which our reproductive freedoms and our reproductive rights are less than what our grandparents were. Yeah. That's a very staggering, horrible direction that this country is heading in. But also, you know, when I started MCI, we've always been kind of cautious around talking about abortion because we don't, again, by virtue of the reproductive biology of sperm producers, nothing that we work on or fund uh, is abortive by virtue of, of the biological reality of things. But internally, after Roe v. Wade was, was overturned, um, we said, you know, this is, this is wrong. Like this is this is not right, even though we don't work on abortive techniques um, or procedures, we are part of the reproductive health ecosystem mm -hmm. and we need to speak out on this. So we did. We put out a quite a statement. And in summary, that statement is really that our role and and what we feel is the role of of other funding agencies, whether they be governmental or non-governmental, is to provide the resources, whether it's educational resources or actual products necessary for people to achieve their family planning goals, full stop. You don't have to justify your family planning objectives or goals to me. I do not, I don't care. That's not true. I mean, obviously I care, but it's none of my business. And so I think, you know, and we as an organization believe that it's not no one has the right to legislate what other people do with their bodies and their mm. decision whether or when to have children. Um, so I think collectively that's what we need to consider is that what works for me, what I view as important for my life is likely going to be different from what's important to you in your life. And that's right. good. That's not a negative thing. We're not, yeah. you know, uh, and that's, I, I think it's very interesting when you look at it through the lens of birth control for sperm producers, no one is a monolith. You know, yeah. we, we try to yeah. look at every everyone as a collective. We need to celebrate everybody's individual interests and pursuits and support those things. And it may fly in the face of what we want for, you know, for example, I have a sibling who has six children. I am child-free. That is his decision is his decision. My decision right. is my decision. And we need to be comfortable with that. Totally. But I think what's really disappointing is, again, you look at the, the data and a majority of Americans support abortion, right? Yep. So this mm -hmm. decision flies in the face of a majority opinion in yes. this nation. So I understand that like the Supreme Court is, is not beholden to constituents the same way as represented officials right. are. However, those justices are appointed by the uh, elected officials that we vote yeah. into office. So I think what this indicates and what the, everyone should think about is how much power you have in your vote, right? Yeah. We're, we're heading into midterm elections in the United States uh, the next couple of weeks. Um, and I think people should think about that, like really consider like, the power of your vote, the power of your voice and speak out on this. Because if you get beyond just the, if you want to get like into the cold, hard facts of this, right? So there's about a hundred million unintended pregnancies every year, like That's more a than a quarter of all pregnancies in the United States are unintended. Yeah. And that, re that results in about five and a half billion dollars in healthcare related costs 
needed to address the ramifications of these unintended pregnancies. So that's a huge number, right? Now I'll hit you with another number. <laughs> one equals five. So we say this quite often, one equals five. For every $1 invested in um, helping to avoid an unintended pregnancy, we get a $5 return in savings on Medicare related expenses wow. for addressing those unintended pregnancies. That translates to $10.5 billion in savings every year. So if you are, again, looking at, I'm not a political scientist, but taking a step back and saying, this is a representative democracy. One of the chief mandates of that representation is fiscal management and responsibility. Mm. How is it fiscal, fiscally responsible to avoid an investment where you get a five time return, you know, right. it's very few investments have that level of return. So this is where it's the decisions are not being made based on uh, majority opinion. They're not being based on financial responsible of uh, responsibility. So what are we doing this for? You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's punitive for no reason. Um, so I think, you know, it's incumbent upon all of us to, talk to each other, to uh, reach out to our elected officials, let them know how you feel about this. And, um, and also understand that, you know, your, your reproductive autonomy should be a basic human right. You know, you shouldn't have to ask permission to do what you want vis-a-vis your family planning goals. So um, whatever we can do to empower individuals, uh, we need to do. And if that means, you know, taking to the streets and campaigning, mm-hmm. great. Uh, I think I, you know, we, we had talked before, I mentioned that, you know, part of our our kind of hopeful vision for our mission statement being reproductive autonomy for all is that it not only capture the ethos of our organization, but it becomes a social movement. Yeah. You know, this is what we're, and again, often joke saying we're waiting for our Greta Thunberg, mm-hmm. um, but like the young people, of, uh, especially in this country and even internationally, uh, when you talk to them, they understand that this is this is wrong, this lack mm-hmm. of options, this this lack of uh, reproductive equity um, is is an injustice for all people. And mm-hmm. so we need to to really look beyond um, contraception as facilitating, you know, risk free sex and I'll look at it more of what are all the social gains that we are missing out on because yeah. we don't have these methods? Yeah. I mean, it still boggles my mind that six people on a bench in the Supreme Court were able to decide, make a huge decision in the Dobbs case that seven out of 10 in Americans believe in the right to privacy to get an abortion. And think about how many millions, hundreds of millions of people, 330 million people in America. I mean, it just baffles my mind. So maybe I'm going to need you to go to the floor of Congress one day and just (laughs) recite those specific facts that say like, hey, if you want to be fiscal responsible, fiscally responsible, this, these are the cold hard facts. So hopefully, you know, that education will come out. Um, And, you know, with many things related to reproductive health, there is often a lack of widespread information or education about contraceptives. Like you were saying, you know, what can we learn about the potential impact of male contraceptives or sperm producer contraceptives? How would it change the conversation around 
gender equality, um, reproductive autonomy, similar in vain to the way the birth control pill gave women economic freedom, you know, when it first came on the market. What are some of the revolutionary things that we could potentially look forward to? Well, this is one of our favorite. Talk about, you know, um, speculative design and thinking about, wow, what could what could the most incredible future look like? Um, as you touched on, you know, even the most optimistic person, no one could have possibly expected or anticipated all of the incredibly positive societal shifts and changes that came with the first birth control pill, right? Nobody yeah. could have possibly anticipated how much, um, you know, empowering women to complete their educational goals, to join the workforce, to, yeah. um, you know, really be viewed in a completely different lens. You know, it's, 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 it's incredible when I think about how different, you know, my parents are in their late seventies, early eighties. Um, I'm in my forties. And, you know, when I grew up, it was, it was common for, well, I'm, my father went to work. My mother sacrificed her career to stay at home, to raise the kids. Um, and then later in life, she went back to work, which is fantastic. But like that whole, those traditional models of, you know, what a family construct looks like yeah. are totally ar arcane anymore. Right. Yeah. Like that's, that's weird. This <laughs> is, yeah. you know, um, anachronistic to, to where we are today. And it's really exciting for me. Like one of the things we talk about is imagine if every single child was born intentionally, right? So that to a, uh, to parents who are financially, emotionally, generally <laughs> ready for this, that they've planned for this, that it's it's intentional. We're prepared for this. You know, look at like the foster care system. Uh, look at so what would we gain, and also what would we lose if every birth was intentional? And I think that's really exciting. And it's hard to kind of just define exactly what it is, um, but we know it's going to be positive, right? So. When we talk to people about this, what's really interesting, contraceptive conversations can be quite divisive. It becomes a his or hers, yours or mine, um, when in reality it's ours. So the next methods that come out, methods for sperm producers are really the next generation of contraception R&D, right? So it's a missing piece that doesn't just benefit the user, it benefits all people. So. Um, when you think about reproductive autonomy, that term, that means being able to do what you want whenever you want, right? So currently, no one has reproductive, reproductive autonomy because sperm producers need to rely on egg producers to take contraception in order to avoid an unintended pregnancy. So therefore, I don't really have reproductive autonomy. Um, an egg producer needs to bear the burden of taking contraception with, you know, there's incredible benefits to that. I'm not being negative about contraception. There's right. also side effects. There's also issues, yeah, but it's also, it's a burden, yeah. yeah. And there's, you have to do something, right? Imagine if you are an egg producer today and most, most egg producers um, will take contraception for 30, 40 years of their lives, a majority of their lives from teen years to their mid forties. Like that's yeah. a huge a amount time. of time. That's a long, long time. Imagine if during that time you could say, I'm not going to take anything and I'll still 
be able to avoid an unintended pregnancy. So I think that's where when we start thinking, and I love the fact that you said conversation, because one thing as minor as it sounds that I'm really hopeful for is that it will increase conversations, mm-hmm. especially within heterosexual couples about who's taking what, when, and why. So when you talk to uh, sperm producers today, you know they'll most often say like, oh yeah, I guess I would take something because it's hypothetical. Mm. Like we need to get beyond the hypothetical so we can actually have some real conversations about, will you take this? And and if not, why? And also giving uh, sperm producers the opportunity to think more deeply about what are they interested in? You know, Mm. as as I said- um, Instead of being passive about it. Oh, 100%. And, And if you look at the reproductive journey of egg producers, you know, we know, uh, based on 60 years of, of research and, and observation, that preferences change over time. So birth control, a daily pill may work at this stage, an IUD at this stage, blah, blah, blah. And that profusion of options allows for a, a more intimate understanding of your individual needs. Yeah. Sperm producers don't have that yet. And that manifests in many ways, including if you look at the healthcare system, I, again, I'm 45 years old. I've never been to a urologist. I, you know, who do I've never talked to a doctor about my reproductive health, um, and we and and that is a huge detriment because there's it's not just about you know whether or not you want to have kids. It's like I want to know how my body works, yeah. you know, and and I think baseline, you have yeah. These, yeah, these methods allow you to do that. So I think again, with once these new methods come out, we move beyond hypothetical scenarios beyond speculation. And we allow people to have actual conversations about their interests, needs, uh, experiences. Um, But, you know, I mean, going back again, beyond avoiding unintended pregnancies and and things like that, by being able to meaningfully reduce unintended pregnancies, we would be able to to better uh, meet our like sustainability objectives if we were able to empower people to control their fertility. I think that's really important. And I also should mention, you know, back when I said that, you know, the birth control pill had a very revolutionary effect on society, I also should have added that and acknowledged that there was a very dark history in relation to the emergence of birth control. There was a history of racism and, you know, the Puerto Rico experiments. And so it's important to acknowledge that and to learn from it. And hopefully that we as a country can do better and uh, it sounds like with more education and more conversation like you said and and finding ways that serve all people that bring more people into the conversation gender diversity that we can move to a society that you know benefits everyone not just a select few um so speaking of everyone what can the average person do to help push these current birth control studies forward, bring them to market, you know, should there be more sperm producers sharing their stories, making TikTok videos, testifying before Congress, like I mentioned, holding up signs, like what are some of the everyday things that an average person could do? Yes to everything you just said, 100%. Um, Working in this field, it's it's easy to get frustrated and it's easy to, to become pessimistic, but I think what aligns all of us is like a fundamental optimism. There's so much work to be done that anything people do is helpful, right? So we we have a whole page on our website about get, how to get involved. And I mean, there's, there's huge things like, you know, being willing to be a participant in a clinical trial for a new contraceptive method. 
Um, that's obviously a huge ask, but I, I honestly think that the most important thing is for us individually to understand, to think about what, what are my family planning objectives? What are my needs um, vis-a-vis healthcare broadly, but specifically, obviously, contraception? Um, and then once you kind of arrive at that and, and seek out information, inform yourself, and then start questioning, why is the system the way it is today? It's kind of a running joke. Anytime you talk to younger people or even you know older people like me, um, sexual education experiences are abysmal both in the United States and overseas. So why aren't we doing more to educate our youth about how their bodies work in a way that is constructive and positive, not a, I just interviewed one of my nephews not too long ago for our podcast. And uh, he said that, you know, oh, well, sex education, that was in a, a health module all about uh, dangers. So it was right. included with uh, tobacco use oh and, um, a driver safety. So it was oh all, my God. <laughs> and he said his big takeaway was if I have, un, you know, premarital sex, I'm, I'm going to burn in hell. You know, it's like, yeah, oh, okay, don't that, have sex, you're going to get pregnant and die. <laughs> yeah, there's a healthy message to send to children. Totally. Um, so I think there's one educating yourself, finding out, you know, what resources are out there contributing towards that knowledge base, right? So, you know, we have a whole section on our website about educational primers because we realize most people don't understand how reproductive biology works. And if you don't have that foundational understanding, how are you going to understand how the contraceptive products work? Um, So I think educating yourself. And then once you have that baseline education and you understand what your interests and needs are, start talking to your friends and family and loved ones and neighbors and whomever, you know, but like you said, I I think TikTok, social media is an unbelievable opportunity. These are free platforms that you have an amazing potential for amplifying messages. Um, Get out there, talk to people, share your messages, make sure that people understand, like, again, going back to we are, we live in a democracy in the United States. These are officials that are elected to make decisions for us. They listen to their constituents. They will react to what they see. And if they keep seeing more and more this demand, um, then it's going to be very, very difficult to not justify providing these services and products to people. So, um, you know, and, and there's a whole slew of, you know, options on our, again, on our website, um, reach out to us. We're more than happy. We have surveys. We have all sorts of ways that we can capture and share people's uh, information. But, you know, again, going back to my experiences working in human-centered design overseas, never underestimate the power of an individual narrative, like the Mm -hmm. serendipity that arrives from just having someone have the personal vulnerability and the strength to share hey, here's how I feel about something that can unlock and catalyze conversations and thinking for a whole host of people. So never underestimate the individual power that you have and that your voice has in in being a change maker in the world. And we need all the help we can get. Again, there's five people at MCI. Mm -hmm. So we are more than happy to help take on any volunteers um, or provide any information to help um, empower advocates out there. Because you know, this is, we wouldn't be doing this work if we didn't believe it was so critical. And um, it is going to be world changing, uh, life changing, life saving. Let's all just get on board with that and make sure that 
we speak with a collective voice and that, that voice is heard. Amen to that. I love that. And <laughs> like Kevin said, you can head to the MCI website and social media. We're going to link to all of that. Get in touch and um, mailcontraceptive.org. Mailcontraceptive.org. There you go. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for sharing this wealth of information and just ideas and insights. It's been really, really wonderful. And hopefully, we can be part of continuing the conversation with you and your organization in the future. And we're excited to see where it all goes. So, thank you so much. No, thank you very much for having me. And, and like I was just saying about individual voices and sharing narratives, I think this doing shows like this like the fact that you're willing to talk about this topic and present this to your audience is a massive step forward so thank you so much for covering this well now that you have heard and digested all this eye-opening information you want to get involved right well head to malecontraceptive.org to get familiar with all the methods and studies they are funding and follow them on social media to support their work in the pursuit of reproductive autonomy for all the Repro Film Podcast is executive produced by Mama Film, hosted and produced by me, Asha Dyer, edited by Kylie Brown, with original music by Paris Jane and Maurice Anthony. The periodical is programmed by Neha Aziz and written by Emily Christensen. Alex Scambardi is our social media manager, and Rebecca Sosa is our distribution and impact strategist. You can find us on social media at ReproFilm on Instagram and at ReproFilmFest on Twitter. I look forward to bringing you our next conversation. Bye for now. Bye.